The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts. We're going back to our studies in the book of Acts that we left off at the end of November for Christmas and then uh, being away a little bit of January as well. The words I would direct your attention to this morning are to be found in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 24. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 24. And as you're finding your place, I'm going to give you a brief recap of the continuing work of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and disciples from chapter 1 to chapter 8. We saw in chapter 1 that our Lord Jesus Christ gave the apostles their program for ministry and outreach before he returned to glory. We see that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and the apostles bear witness to Christ in Jerusalem streets. In chapter 3, a lame man is healed, and Peter and John again bear witness to Christ in the temple courts. Then in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested while preaching Christ, and they bear witness to Christ in the Sanhedrin's court. And then in chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira appear as opposition to the church from within, and the apostles after that, after dealing with that, are again arrested, and again they bear witness to Christ through the preaching of the gospel there, and through physical suffering. In chapter 6, the church is challenged with internal difficulties leading to the rise and the appointment of the deacons, including Stephen and Philip. And then in chapter 7, we saw Stephen's great sermon of witness to Christ before the Sanhedrin and before dying as the first martyr and witness for Christ. And now, We're here in chapter 8. In the very end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus, who initiates the first full-scale persecution of the New Testament church, which results in it being scattered and going out from Jerusalem. They preach the gospel. Well, I want to read our text this morning. We did look at a part of chapter 8 back in November, so we're going to pick up the middle part here. In 9 to 24, I had hoped to do from 9 all the way to the end. But as I was studying and working on Simon's life, there was just so much there we needed to look at. I thought, well, we'll just do a little bit extra and we'll go back to uh, the Ethiopian eunuch next week and if Acts 9 after that. Let's read Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. And I'm going to do what Christian did because I like that. I'm going to ask you all to stand in reverence and respect for God's Word, and we'll read God's Word as we stand together, if you're able to stand. That's a, if you're not able to, no dramas whatsoever. The Bible says at verse 9 of chapter 8, But there was a man named Simon, 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. So the Holy Spirit-empowered witness to Christ has resulted in thousands coming to faith in Christ and being added to the church. It's resulted in the rise of opposition from outside, from an unrepentant Jewish Sanhedrin. It's resulted in opposition from inside as Ananias and Sapphira's sin is against the Holy Spirit and it's dealt with. The Spirit-empowered witness of Christ has resulted in full-scale persecution from Saul, um, supported by the Sanhedrin and the Jews. And the Christian church has been established within Jerusalem and Judea And the gospel witness now spreads to its next phase, which is Samaria. Remember what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will receive power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. This is the next great phase in the spread of the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowered witness to Christ through gospel preaching is God's means of saving sinners, changing lives, establishing, strengthening, and growing his church. And the devil hates it. The devil hates it when the gospel spread, when God's kingdom increases. And the account of Simon the sorcerer is a reminder from the Lord of the reality that the devil plants unconverted false believers amongst truly converted believers in the church. Let me give you an example how we know that. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, our Lord Jesus told us that the parable of the weeds that was sown by the enemy amongst the wheat 
false believers sown amongst true believers, unconverted men and women sown and raising up alongside of truly converted ones. Remember also Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23, our Lord Jesus made one of his soberest and direst warnings to us. He said that good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. He said in verses 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we know the scripture teaches us that lawlessness, of course, is sin. The devil hates it when God's church grows, when souls are saved, and so he works tirelessly and unswervingly against it. So our text of Scripture for today provides us with a very necessary warning and challenge to our own souls. Don't forget, the Word of God was given to believers. This was written by Luke to Christian believers. It was a reminder and a warning to them. Are we truly converted? Are we truly believing in Christ? Are we doing the will of the Father in heaven? Or are we, like Simon, living as unconverted and false believers in Christ? But the great news is, it doesn't end with Simon's just going off into the world. It ends up with a great message of hope. Now, you might think, I didn't want to come to church this morning and get challenged to my core about whether or not I'm truly saved. I wanted to come and get bumped up and pluffed up and and ready to go for another week and just maybe a good pep talk from the pastor. But you know what? I'm absolutely convinced that God brings each one of us into this church to hear the message that He would have us hear. Why are you here today? Because God has a message for your soul. And I plead with you to listen. Well, uh, this is not a very sermon-like sermon. I'll confess that at the beginning. I don't have a great deal of structure and points. I'm simply going to work my way through the text and draw some lessons and observations as we go. So I apologize for that. But what I would encourage you to do is open your Bibles, uh, whether you have a paper one or an uh, electronic one, if you must. Uh, Paper ones are better if you ask me, but that's just me. Uh, Open it up and keep in front of you and just keep tracking with me as we go through the text. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 9, that Simon was a practicing magician. In the ancient Near East... Sorry. In the ancient Near East, there were magicians of all types. There were the Magi. We see them every Christmas. They're students and scholars of ancient text. And in Matthew's Gospel, they came seeking Christ at Christmas. There was the carnival type of magician. You know, sleight of hands, doing tricks. It's all just gimmicks and illusion. It's not really magic. But then there are also those who are associated with ancient Egypt 
religions and maybe even some of the Ephesian magicians that you meet in Acts chapter 19. Their practice was done in secret for the benefit of paying customers, but mostly for the benefit of the magicians themselves. These magicians claimed to bind and loose demons to manipulate evil and spiritual powers to do whatever they wanted done. Simon himself was apparently one of these types of magicians. He had a high degree of fame and notoriety amongst the people of Samaria. In fact, it says there that he amazed the people of Samaria. In verse 10, the Bible makes it clear that Simon held the attention of all the people of Samaria. In verse 9, Simon himself claims and states that he was somebody great. So we could certainly conclude that Simon was a very prideful, evil, and dangerous man. Then we see in verse 10 that Simon was believed to be God, or at the least very close to God. The phrase there, this man is the power of God that is called great. And scholars understand that phrase to be equating Simon with God. So they're basically saying Simon is God. So Simon's sorcery, his Satan-empowered magic work, was designed to glorify Satan and Simon. And that was going on for some time. So he was the local big show. He was the one that was doing all this stuff. And all the people of Samaria are amazed at him. And one day, this Hellenistic Jew... You know your, if you know your Bible, you know that Jews did not like Samaritans, and Samaritans did not like Jews. And this Hellenistic Jew named Philip comes amongst them, and he's preaching the gospel. And he comes, and the Bible says in verse 5 that Philip proclaimed Christ to them. He, uh, he preached the gospel. He preached in verse 12 the gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And that's biblical shorthand to say he preached the good news of the sovereign rule and reign and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he preached another man who is truly God and infinitely greater than Simon the magician. It's the good news about our infinitely great God and Savior who came into the world, who was born of a virgin, who lived the obedient, sinful holy and righteous life before God, who suffered and died on a cross to free us from God's eternal wrath against sinners like us for our sin. He rose triumphantly. He ascended on high to rule and reign on His Father's exalted throne. And Christ is. Praise God this morning that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords to set all people free from the domain of darkness. And you can imagine those people in Samaria. They've been under the spell and sway of this Simon for all this time. And someone comes and he's doing great signs and wonders and miracles and preaching a great message of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that they believed. And we praise God for that belief. We praise God that the gospel crossed that cultural barrier and so many came to know the gospel of Jesus. That's great good news. Good news 
Philip's gospel news, like I mentioned earlier, was validated by signs and wonders and miracles that the Spirit of God performed through him for the glory of God and Christ alone. Notice again the results of his preaching in verse 6. The Samaritans heard the gospel. They saw the signs and they were all amazed. And then in verse 13 we read this, that even Simon himself believed the gospel. They believed Philip's message about Christ and salvation. But listen, here's where we need to draw our first really important point. Beloved, not all belief is truly saving belief. Simon's belief was only an intellectual belief, not a belief from his whole heart. And you say, how do you know that? Well, look at Peter's words in verse number 21. He says to Simon, your heart is not right with God. And he says to Simon, you have no part or lot in this matter. Peter discerned that Simon was not truly saved or converted. So how do we account for these words here back in verse 13, that Simon himself believed? Well, to believe something is true does not necessarily change the state of our soul, the state of our heart before God. We use the words belief in two general senses, an intellectual belief and a wholehearted belief. An intellectual belief only is not saving belief because the Bible says, you probably know this verse, Romans 10 and verse 9, if we confess with our mouth and believe what? With our brains? No, it doesn't say that. It says, believe with our hearts, then we're saved. Now, obviously, now before you jump up and go, wait a minute, we got to know what we're believing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We know it here. We agree with it. But saving faith, as we'll talk about in a second, involves the whole heart throwing itself entirely upon Christ for salvation. He had an intellectual belief. Beloved, we need to think about this. Intellectual belief in God, that God exists as the Bible describes, does not save us. An intellectual belief in the Old Testament and New Testament stories is true and accurate. You can affirm with your mind that everything the Bible says is absolutely true and that will not save you. Intellectual belief that Jesus is the Son of God who came, who lived, who died and rose again, does not save you. The great danger we have in a time like ours, in a culture like ours, which places such a high emphasis on intellectual knowledge and learning, is we can make the fatal mistake of thinking because we know the facts of the gospel, because we agree with the facts of the gospel intellectually, then we're saved. And the answer is, that's not saving faith. So, what then is saving faith? Saving faith is wholehearted belief. It is based on knowing the truth of the gospel. Yes, we absolutely have to know the truth of the message of the gospel. Why we preach and teach the scriptures is so that we will have a full understanding of the whole counsel of God and God's plan to save us. We have to know it. 
But saving faith is to throw ourselves fully and completely on Christ. It's to trust in Christ and in Christ alone to save us from the righteous anger of God, which is coming very soon. Firstly, saving faith is the result of God's work to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again. Secondly, saving faith is a deep-rooted assurance created in us by God's Holy Spirit through the gospel that by God's grace alone my sins are forgiven. My heart is forever made right with God. I've been granted salvation from God's wrath through Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God as Paul says in Romans 8, bears witness with our spirits internally to tell us that you are truly saved. He gives us that deep-rooted assurance that says, I'm absolutely safe in God's hands. But thirdly, saving faith results in conversion and change. There's a change of desires, a change of inclinations, a change of habits, a change of behavior. It's not always great in immediate cataclysmic change. In some people's lives, God works that way, and we praise God for it. But sometimes those changes are slow and steady. But listen to this. Saving faith always brings change. Conversion from sinner to saint. Conversion is kind of an old word. We don't hear it much anymore in preaching. It's an old word used by older preachers, and it's a very good word because it indicates that the person has been changed from the state of in sin to a state in Christ. There is a change that has happened on the inside that's working its way out to the outside, through our hands and our feet and our mouths and so on. Beloved, this morning I've got to ask you, are you truly born again? Are you truly trusting fully in God to save you? Are you trusting in Christ to save you from God's wrath which is to come? Do you have that deep-rooted assurance from God's Holy Spirit that you're forgiven, you're saved, you're adopted by God? You say, I'm not sure. You know what? And if that bothers you, I praise God for that. You know why? Because an un believer, an unregenerate person couldn't care less about it. They just blow it off and keep going. But somebody who wrestles deep in their heart, wrestling whether or not they're truly saved before God, that's a sign that the Spirit of God is truly at work in that person's life. Brother and sister, are you born again? Do you see in your life change being worked and produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit? Do you see a change inside the the things you used to do and used to put up and tolerate? You're becoming less tolerant of sinful things and more inclined and more drawn towards the things of God. As we see from Simon's life, as we consider it, we'll see that there really was no change whatsoever. But I want you to notice in verse 13 that Simon was baptized by Philip. Simon himself is clearly self-deceived into thinking he was a true believer. He presents himself with the rest of the Samaritans to be baptized by Philip. And Philip saw no reason, no doubt, of Simon's conversion. 
You say, how is that possible? How is Philip, the spirit-filled deacon, coming and preaching? How come he didn't pick it up? Why was it only Peter? Well, the reality is, brothers and sisters, listen, wheat and tares. Remember that story that Jesus told? Wheat and tares, as I understand, look a lot alike. Look a lot alike. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, here's the truth. Genuine converted often looks very, very much like unconverted. We can put on the right clothes. We can carry the right Bible. We can say the right things. We can sing with our hearts full. But there's no change deep inside. There's no change been worked. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Think about this. He said, those will come on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your names? And did we not prophesy, or that means preach, in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Those men who had done all those things were clearly thinking and self-deceived into thinking they were truly saved, but they weren't. And Jesus makes the, the, the distinction. He says, those who do the will of my Father, those are the ones who are truly saved. These men in Matthew 7 and Simon and who knows how many others were self-deceived. They had, beloved, some of us have an intellectual belief. And Satan's favorite trick to play is to counterfeit, to create counterfeits of what is true, giving mere men power to do what looks like the real thing, but in fact it's not at all. So Simon comes and he presents himself for baptism and he is baptized along with all the other Samaritans. And listen, beloved, this point needs to be made too. Being baptized is no proof of salvation. Baptism does not, it cannot guarantee or impart salvation to us. Baptism is a mark of obedience. It's an external physical demonstration of an internal reality. And one of the things I do with everybody I take into that tank to be baptized is make sure they understand fully. If there's no conversion, there's no real genuine saving faith, the only thing going into that tank does is give you a public dunking with your clothes on. You get wet for nothing. We don't even throw in soap and shampoo. It's pointless. Baptism does not save. It does not impart and it does not guarantee salvation. Notice also in verse 13, the Bible says that Simon continued with Philip staying close at hand. Simon in that moment, in that state, had a devotion to Philip and the church. He continued with Philip. And here again, there's a great warning for us as well. Devotion to the church, to its leaders, preachers, pastors, is not proof of conversion. Just because you rock up to church every Sunday morning without fail and sit in your favorite seat does not guarantee anything. It is not proof of conversion. Claiming that because you intend somebody famous as church, you intend such a such church as proof of your conversion is totally invalid. Remember Judas? Judas Iscariot traveled with the disciples and with Jesus for those three years. He went out and preached and teached and did all kinds of things, and yet he was never truly converted and never truly saved. And in the end, he went out and served the purposes of God Yes, but in betraying and denying the Son of God. 
buying and reading, knowing the ministry of great men, great apologists, great preachers, great pastors is not proof of your salvation. Knowing how to quote all those great quotes that you come across is not proof of conversion. Philip, sorry, not Philip, Simon saw and was amazed in verse 13 at the great miracles that the Spirit of God was performing through Philip. And in verse 18, Simon saw the Spirit given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And now, all of a sudden, we begin to see the truth of Simon's heart beginning to show through. And listen, beloved, an unbelieving heart will eventually reveal itself. You might fool some for a while, but never forever. An unbelieving heart will not be able to cover, to hide its true state from the eyes of others 100% of the time. In an unguarded moment, a natural, unspiritual, unbelieving reaction will reveal the true state of the heart of that person. And we're going to see that unfolded for us here in Simon's words to Peter. An unbelieving heart will eventually turn and walk away from the faith. Sometimes... I've got to make this caveat. Sometimes true believers will backslide briefly, but they will always return. And when they backslide briefly, there'll be a tremendous time of struggle as the Spirit of God works in that person's heart to convict them of their sin, to drive home the point. They need to go back and renew that faith they once held so dear. They need to return in seeking forgiveness with God. But someone who is not truly believed will drift away, never to return. Nobody who is truly saved can lose their salvation. The question is, were they, and I'll say this to maybe one that's sitting here this morning, were you truly saved to begin with? All true believers, I'm going to say it again, will have their moments when the the fleshly nature will rise and appear, but never without a subsequent realization, a repentance, a seeking forgiveness, a returning to strive to put off that old nature again and walk with Christ. But sadly, that's not what we see in Simon's life. In verse 13, Simon's focus is on the signs and miracles performed by Philip. His unconverted magician's heart is focusing on the signs, not the reality that they pointed to. And one of the great dangers in the signs and wonders movement is it's all focused on the sign, the wonder, not to the reality that it's pointing to. In verse 18, Simon's focus was on the laying on of hands by the apostle. Simon's focus on the, on the benefits and the blessings of the gospel, not on God himself. And in verse 18, Simon offers money to the apostles to buy that authority, that gift of imparting the Spirit to others. And now here we see in these words, Simon's unconverted heart is fully in view. He clearly saw that the gift of God was able to be purchased. That's what he thought. Much the same as other pagan priesthoods could be purchased. Now, as I understand from reading some of the history behind this, it was somewhat common practice for different men to purchase with great sums of money a priesthood in a certain religion. So you buy a priesthood, you get robes, you get the whole thing, and you can go out and practice that priesthood in some other area for money. That's how it usually works. 
Now you say that how foreign to Jews and Samaritans. No, actually, sadly, within Judaism, some of the highest ranking high priests were paying money and buying influence with all sorts of people, including, including the Romans, in order to get themselves into power. The high priest is supposed to be there for his whole life. When he dies, they get a new one. That's the way it was supposed to be. But if you read the Gospels, read very carefully, you'll see that there was not just one or two. There were several high priests living during the time of Jesus. Why? Because they're all doing deals behind closed doors to buy influence and power. And that's exactly what Simon's doing here. He comes to the apostles, here's some money, give me this power, then I can go out and exercise this priesthood under your authority, and I can make some money off of what's going on here. He believed, this is the hard part, he believed that he was able to manipulate and control spiritual powers, still able to do it, including, and we should be shocked with this, he believed he was able to control and manipulate Almighty God in heaven for His own profit. Simon was, in effect, still practicing his magicianship, just as he had been doing before. He saw an opportunity here to increase his fame. Beloved, his sin is indeed a grievous sin against God. His sinful words display a heart not humble before God. They display a heart not submitted to Christ as Lord over all. They display a heart still at enmity against God. There was an intellectual belief, but there was no change within. Simon the magician is still Simon the magician. Beloved, how many of us are doing Exactly the same thing. We have an intellectual belief. We know scripture. We know the gospel. We know theology. But there's no change of heart. There's no change of ways. There's no desire for God. There's only a desire for the benefits and the blessings that the gospel supplies. And if we close the chapter and Simon at that point, it would be the most discouraging chapter in the Bible. But here's the great news. There's hope. There is tremendous hope. And beloved, just as just to time out for a second, if you're somebody sitting here and you have the sneaking suspicion that this is talking about you, I want you to know something, that God is absolutely sovereign. You are not here by random chance and happening. There's no such thing in existence as random. You're here... Because God brought you here. You're here this morning, sitting in this slowly, steadily heating up room. Would you hear a message about how you can still have forgiveness and how you can still be numbered amongst the believers? Luke, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, has given us Noble Park Baptist Church this Sunday morning, this text and story as a sober and a serious warning with the great gospel news of the resolution to the problem that the story presents. In verses 20 to 21 and verse 23, Simon is rebuked by Peter. Peter does not merely let him go unchecked and unchallenged. Peter's not at all concerned with the numbers or church growth. He isn't maybe going to placate Simon. Oh, it's okay, Simon. You know, you really can't do that, but, you know, just, you know, hang out. No, he doesn't do that. Not at all. 
Peter is most concerned about the state of his soul, concerned enough to say these blunt, confronting, and offensive words to him. He has a true pastor's heart, his love for Christ, his love for the gospel, his love for the church, and his love for Simon brings him to rebuke him in the hopes of his conversion even yet. Brother and sister in Christ, if you're a Simon this morning, you're here because God brought you here that you might have hope of conversion even yet. Listen to what Peter says to him. He says in verse 20, May your silver perish with you. He recognized Simon's unconverted state and the reality of his imminent peril of eternal death perishing in hell. May your silver perish with you. In other words, you're already perishing. May your silver go with you. That's a pretty blunt statement. And you can state it in a way that sounds so like a major kickback. But in actual fact, what he's doing is he's opening and letting Simon see the state of his own heart. You're perishing without change or conversion. Simon, you'll perish in hell. Without true conversion, without true genuine belief, we will all perish in hell. That's not a very politically correct statement to make today. But it's the absolute truth of Scripture. And so we'll say it, and we'll say it again. In verse 21, Peter goes on, You have no part or share in this matter. What's Peter talking about? Part or share in what? You have no part or share in saving faith in God. You have no part or share in salvation and conversion and filling of the Spirit. Did you notice how this all happened? The apostles are praying, and they're laying hands on people, and they're being filled with the Spirit. What would happen to Simon? Nothing. Because the Spirit of God is not working him. He's still unconverted. And obviously he stands there wondering what's going on. Peter says, you have no part or share in this matter. He made it clear to him, you are not a Christian. He made it crystal clear, you're outside of Christ. He has no fellowship or relationship with Christ. Without conversion, we have no fellowship with Christ. And Peter sums it up in verse 21. Your heart is not right before God. In those words, Peter nails Simon's hypocrisy on the head. Your heart is not right before God. Listen, beloved. We may have a right heart before men. We may have impressed. He may have impressed the Samaritan church. And you might come in here week after week and impress a church like us. It's possible. You may have deceived yourself up until now. But you have not deceived God. Because as Peter says, your heart is not right before God. God sees the state of every one of our hearts. You have not, you cannot, you will never deceive God. Your heart is unconverted. You're still at war with God. And in verse 23, he says, you're in the gall of bitterness. And as I understand it, the gall batter produces the bitter stomach acids that break down food for digestion. So also, 
An unforgiven, unconverted heart produces bitterness that affects themselves and all those around them. And Peter's saying, listen, Simon, your unconverted state has produced a bitterness within you rather than the sweet fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. He sums it up, 23. You're in the bonds of iniquity. Simon, you are enslaved to sin. And I so wish I could bring a message on this coming back from holidays that would be just full of joy. And I'm going to right now because this message ends in hope. It doesn't end there. Praise God that you're here if you're a Simon because that's not the end of the story. And so I say this morning, beloved, for the sake of your eternal soul, listen. If there is only an intellectual belief and assent to the gospel, if there's no coordinating change of heart, no change of inclination towards God and away from sin, if there's no change of life, of practice, of habit, if there is in you a greater desire for the benefits of the gospel than for Christ himself, than the authority of scripture, I tell you, you are not saved not converted, without Christ and unforgiven. But listen to Peter's words. He says to him in verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Repent and pray for forgiveness. What's Peter say decades later in 2 Peter 3? God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I am certain as he stood there and Simon's in front of him and they're having this awkward exchange of words and Peter's speaking to him in love for him. He recognizes that even though they're still in this situation right here, right now, there's opportunity for Simon to repent. There's opportunity for him to pray and find forgiveness with God. There's an opportunity for him to put aside all that other stuff and throw himself completely on Christ for salvation. To believe had to be saved. Not just a belief here, but a belief here too. The word repentance, some groups very sadly will tell you that repentance is not part of salvation. It comes later. And I would argue on the authority of Scripture, that's not true. Repentance includes faith. Or if you like, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. When we come by faith, We come in faith to God. We come in faith repenting. And as we repent, we trust God for salvation and forgiveness. You cannot split them apart. So he says to to Simon, who has believed, he has a knowledge of the truth. He says, repent, Simon. In the power of the Holy Spirit, put aside your sin. Throw yourself completely on God. Cry out to God for forgiveness. And we see... So tragically, Simon's heart is just displayed for us. And he says to him, pray for me. You say, what's wrong with that? Simon, you've just heard what Peter said. You pray. You seek God's forgiveness, Simon. 
Nobody in this room can pray for you that God will forgive you. You must pray. You must come to God on your own and seek his forgiveness. The whole idea in Catholicism, it says that one person can forgive and pray on behalf of another person. It doesn't work. And the wonderful truth is that there's one mediator between God and man. Who? The man Christ Jesus. And so he says to Simon, Simon, pray and plead with God for forgiveness. Turn away from this sin of yours and know what it is to truly be saved. There's hope in this story, beloved, because as long as we draw breath, there's time, there's space, there's opportunity to repent and believe the gospel and know what it is to be saved. So what about us? What about you and I? The scriptures are not given just as a historical record for us to know what happened in the early days of the church. They're given as God's words for us for today. The message of this text for us today is watch out that you're a Simon. And if God's Holy Spirit is beginning to convict you that you're the Simon in that text... And hear Peter's words, the words of Scripture, repent and pray that you may be forgiven because there is grace, there's mercy, there's hope because of the cross. We have hope this morning. Thousands, millions out there walking around thinking they have hope because they've got a great bank account or they've got a great investment portfolio. Forget that. We have hope this morning because Jesus Christ suffered and died and paid the penalty for our sin that we might be forgiven. But belief is not just intellectual assent. It isn't just agreeing with a set of facts. It's throwing ourselves completely on Christ in hope, in faith, that when Christ returns on that great judgment day, he will gather us to himself under his right arm and call us as a bride to a bridegroom, and the rest will be told to depart. Beloved, hear the message of Scripture and respond. For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and know what it is to be truly converted, pray for those around you. Cry out to God that those around you who maybe are self-deceived, into thinking they're truly saved, but they're not, cry out that God would reveal it to their hearts and bring them to that point of repentance and seeking God's forgiveness. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we stand here, O God, before you in your very presence. And we recognize again that there is no God like you, righteous, holy, indignant at sin, but Father, also loving, kind, and gracious. Father, you are the merciful God who has extended to us the great offer of salvation and restoration in Christ. Father, we give thanks that with wholehearted belief and repentance of sin, we can know what it is to be truly forgiven, born again with a hope in heaven. Father, I cry out to you for every single person in this room.
that your spirit would take the words of the text of Scripture and apply it to their lives. Father, that your, word, your spirit would bring forth life in them, in us. Father, we thank you again for this church. We thank you again, O oh God, for a time of worship. We thank you, O oh God, for the time of fellowship that we're about to enjoy. But Father, we pray, we plead with you, O oh God, that the Spirit of God would drive home the message of this text into every heart and every life that we would not walk away unchanged, but we would walk away changed by what we've heard. Father, we ask you these things. We plead with you, O God, for your help, and we give thanks again in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.